All right, guys. We're real. I feel like I should be going like this because there's like a lot of people over here. And well, it's the quality of people over here, though, that makes the difference. <laughs> uh, no, I am. Um, Y'all are stuck with me tonight. I am um, teaching Josh. Um, wanted me to teach through the atonement of Jesus Christ. And so that's what we're going to look at tonight and next week. So I'm excited about that. Um, I just wanted to say I've really enjoyed being a part of this youth group. I mean, I'm not like a part, a part of it. I'm, 40, I'm too old for that. Anthony tells me weekly that I'm old. So I know full well that I am an old man. And I'm and I'm bald, <clears throat> so there's that. No, but I do. I, I love you guys. Um, I love being here on Wednesday nights. I love you know worshiping with y'all. I love beating y'all at basketball. Just all of it. It's been it's been great. Um, <clears throat> so I will pray. Oh, one quick thing. Um, I think Emily asked me about study guides. I don't have study guides. I'm not like a professional pastor like Josh or anything. I'm not. I'm not. So I don't have a study guide. So you will, I told Emily, you will have to write it upon the tablet of your heart. So. <clears throat> All right. Fun, fun, fun. Well, let's pray. And then we'll get started. All right? Let's pray. Father, I come to you and I just thank you so much for everything you've done for us. Lord, I thank you so much for your son, Jesus Christ, and for what he accomplished for us on the cross. Lord, I know there's only... Um, you're the only one that can truly um, speak of and teach us how truly awesome and great and precious and valuable your son is. And so we ask for your spirit, Lord, to come and teach us tonight. Lord, we just thank you so much for how you're going to do that, and we love you, and we pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. How can a loving God allow anyone to go to hell? How many of y'all have heard a question like that before? Most people in here can raise their hands. I would raise my hand. I've heard that question before. How can a loving God allow anyone to go to hell? That is a question that we've heard and is in our culture because most of our culture has men at the center of their world. So it's not a question that we're going to look at tonight. It's not a question that we're even going to consider as legitimate because the Bible doesn't see that question as legitimate. Because the Bible has God at the center. 
There is a question, however, that the Bible, although it doesn't say it in as many words, the Bible conveys this question on nearly every page. It's a question that God answered with the most final, perfect, resounding answer that the world has ever heard. And the question is this, how can a just God allow anyone into heaven? That's the question we're going to consider tonight. That's a, it, it poses a problem. If you don't see the problem it poses now, I hope by the end of the night you see the problem and more importantly, the solution. Let's turn to Exodus chapter 34. If somebody could, um, we can all turn there, but if somebody, um, can somebody read that for me? Somebody get that? All right, Logan, great. <clears throat> Exodus 34, 5. Let's go uh, 4 through 7. And while, while he's looking that up, um, just a quick little recap of what's going on here. This is Exodus. This is Mount Sinai, Moses on Mount Sinai. Um, God has been revealing himself a bit at a time to Moses. He, he shows up in the burning bush, and what does he say? He says, I am who I am. In other words, I'm self-existent. I am unchanging. I'm eternal God Almighty. And then before this, he appears to him and he says, um, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and compassion on whom I'm compassion. And um, that's, if you really look into that, what he's saying is, um, I'm the, what, one of the things that makes me glorious in God is that I'm the only one that truly has free will. I'm the only one that can do whatever I want. And then um, here in Exodus 34, uh, 4 through 7. Can you read that for us, Logan? All right, this is the Lord revealing himself, who he is, loving, gracious, abounding in steadfast love, um, forgiving, a God that forgives sin. And, and this is, we rejoice in this. Praise God that he is that way. But then notice what it says. Who will, by, after all of that, it says, who will by no means clear the guilty. Some versions say, who will not leave the guilty unpunished. So this is a, you see the problem here? He's, he's loving and gracious and forgiving and kind, but he will not leave the guilty unpunished. The problem is, we're all guilty. You might say, well, He's God, can't he just forgive sin? The question is this, can God forgive our sin and remain just? What would this look like? Let, let's think about this in an earthly sense. Let's say there is a, an earthly judge 
Let's say there's someone who stands before them that has murdered your entire family. And they stand before the judge and they've been found guilty by the jury. And the judge looks at them and says, I know you've done this terrible crime, but I'm a loving, merciful, and forgiving judge. So I'm going to clear you of this crime. You can go free. Would you say of that judge that that judge is a kind, good, loving, merciful judge? No, you would say he is a wicked judge because he has allowed a murderer to go free. How much more, if we see that in an earthly way, how much more must God judge sin? Um, if somebody could look up Psalm 711. <clears throat> Paul Washer says this while you're looking that up, um, which, by the way, I'm just going to say, I've learned so much of what I understand of the gospel from guys like Paul Washer, R.C. Sproul, John Piper. So if you want to hear what those guys have to say, it's, they say it a lot better than I do. So go look them up and listen to them and learn from them. Paul Washer says this. He says, God is love, therefore he must hate. And the first time I ever heard that, I was like, whoa, wait, what? God is love, therefore he must hate. But then he said this. I love children, therefore I hate abortion. And then it made sense. See, for God to love righteousness, he must hate wickedness. Can somebody read Psalm 711 for me? Who's got that? Casey, go ahead. God is a, was it righteous, honest? Honest, okay, some translations say righteous. God is a righteous judge, a God who feels indignation every day. And later on in the passage, it tells us who he feels indignation against and for what, and it's unrepentant, wicked man. God is a just judge. You know, we have, we have a sense of justice because we're made in God's image, I think. Um, you know, you don't see this even in the animal kingdom, do you? Like, do you know some bears and lions and other animals young sometimes? Okay, like, you think, do you ever hear a squirrel, like, crying out for justice over this bear that's been eaten? You don't see that, do you? Well, what if we showed up next week and y'all were like, hey, where's Jonathan? And I was like, oh, um, we ate him. He was delicious. See what I mean? Like, like the animal kingdom doesn't have that. They don't have that concept of justice. The concept of justice comes from God. It's not something that exists outside, um, outside of him that he's bound to. It is part of his character. It exists because he is just. We're made in his image and so we have some concept of that, but let's be careful that we don't twist that around and try to make God in our image and impose our view of justice 
on God. Um, so if, if God is loving, and he is, but he is also just, and he will by, by no means clear the guilty, he will not leave sin unpunished because he is a good and righteous judge, what do we deserve? What is justice for our sin? All of the above. We, you know, uh, most of the time people don't have a whole lot of problem with kind of, we want to compare our sin. We want to look at other people. We want to say, well, I'm not that bad. You know, we kind of think of the punishment fitting the crime, and we really don't see our crime as that bad. Um, but it also, it also depends, and Josh hit on this last week, and I'm going kind of the same trajectory he, he is um, on this, and so it'll be a little bit of review, but a little different take. Um, the most important thing, though, in understanding this is who the crime is against. You know, and we see this. Um, I'll have to stop talking about him now. Josh just walked in the room, so we'll. I'll tell you. I'll I'll tell you that story later. Um, <clears throat> let's say, all right. Let's say I stole Drew Bieber's um, credit card information. You know his identity. You know he would. He's a marine. He would. He would kill me. Um, his his identity. All of his. You know his. Um, secure, personal, sensitive information, his social security number, all of that stuff, and I sold it uh, on the black market or something. And I got caught. I would get a slap on the wrist. I may serve a little bit of time, you know, probably what a misdemeanor or something like that, you know, if it's not my second offense or wh whatever. Now, same crime, same crime. Let's say I steal sensitive information from the U.S. government and I sell it to another country. Exactly. That is what is that defined as? Anybody know what that's called? Treason. And that is, we, we know, like the punishment for treason, it can be death in some situations. Okay, we understand that on a human level. Okay, and that's just Little old, unimportant Drew Bieber versus the U.S. government. And you see the immensity of the difference of the punishment. So we're talking about man versus, and this is what Josh said last week, infinite God. And so the, the punishment for sin against an infinite God has to be an infinite punishment. Um, in a word, someone said it earlier, we deserve hell. Now, there was a time when you didn't have to define hell as much. There was a common, um, pretty much was taught what hell was. Now, I'm finding that when you say hell, that may not mean what the Bible means about hell. Matter of fact, the last two um, pastors that I had at churches I went to before this, both of them would define hell primarily in this way, separation from God. I know where they get that, and we don't have time to really flesh this out um, totally, but 
they get that from verses like uh, 1 Thessalonians 2.9, which says that um, unbelievers will suffer away from the presence of the Lord. Um, but Jonah 1.3 says that um, Jonah went to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. So by that logic, God is not in hell, and God is also not in Tarshish. Now, is God in Tarshish? Yes, he is. <clears throat> Let's look at another verse that is going to show us um, Revelation 14. Let's see, these got a little... Yeah, Revelation 14, 9 through 11. And, and we'll, this will help us sort out what hell is, what hell isn't, who's there, who's not there. If somebody could read that when they um, go for it. All right, so a few high points. One, did it say in there that that was talking about hell, by the way, and there were unbelievers there. Um, in this case, it, it was talking about those who had taken the mark of the beast, but it's, it's talking about hell and it's unbelievers. Um, who's, who, who else, their presence was there? The presence of the, it said the lamb, didn't it? Who is the lamb? Jesus. In the presence of the lamb, in hell. At the start of that verse, so, so what, what we're going to see here is, is yes, 1 Thessalonians 2.9 says that they will suffer away from the presence of the Lord, but here it says they're in the presence of the Lamb. And so we've got to understand what is meant by His presence here. Um, if we look at the start there, it says, um, it tells us that really the essence of what hell is about and what makes hell so terrible. Um, the first part of that says that hell, it says that they will drink the wine of God's wrath poured full strength into the cup of his anger. And we're going to come back to that word cup. Remember that. The wine of God's wrath, that is what makes hell so bad. It's not that God isn't there. In fact, this says the reason hell is so bad is because God is there judging justly sinners, unrepentant sinners, unrepentant, unbelieving sinners. Just like heaven will be heaven, and this is how the, the presence is. We're going to be in God's presence in heaven, right? Absolutely. And, and how will we experience his presence in heaven? Love, joy, peace goodness, glory, the glories of his grace, all of those things. We will experience God in heaven like that. In hell, it will be his wrath and his anger and his just vengeance. So that is what the punishment for 
sinning against even the smallest sin against an infinite God deserves. Now, you might think at this point, I thought we were talking about the atonement of Jesus Christ, and here you've been going on for 15 minutes or more about sin and all this, but hear me. If you do not understand the problem, you will not appreciate the solution. And the measure by which you understand the problem, in other words, your, um, your sinfulness and God's holiness will be the measure by which you value the solution to the problem. So let's turn to Romans 23, or Romans 3, 23 through 26. And we're going to look again at, it really poses that and answers the question, how can a just God allow anyone into heaven? Romans 3, 23 through 26. And if we can just kind of read through this together a little bit. Kind of go kind of word by word on this. A lot of people, a lot of theologians, and I think rightfully so, have called this passage the Acropolis of the Bible. Now, I don't know what the word Acropolis means, but it sounds super important. It is a cool word. Um, probably should look that one up. The pinnacle. It's the, the, the pinnacle of the Bible. All right, we all there? Romans 3.23. These are familiar verses. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So we've just spent the last 20 minutes talking about that. Verse 24. And are justified. That doesn't answer our question. How are they justified? By His grace. Well, grace is great. Still doesn't answer our question. How is God's justice maintained in forgiving sinners as a gift? That's great. Gifts are great. But how does God maintain his justice and forgive sinners? Then he says, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood, to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. See, this is that God-centered view to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. What sins? What sins had he passed over to this point? All the sins that had happened before the cross, right? Right? Um, Adam and Eve, David, King David, murderer, adulterer, yet not bearing God's wrath after he died or while he was alive. So this is answering that question. God did not punish them according to their sins. He goes on and says, it was to show his righteousness at the present time. Whose righteousness? God's righteousness. At the present time, so that, and here's the answer, so that he might be just. That God might be just 
and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ Jesus. So here he answers the question, how can God maintain his justice as the righteous judge of the universe and still show mercy and grace and forgiveness to man? Do y'all see see that problem that that question presents? Christ put forward as a propitiation. So what is a propitiation? This is not used that many times in the Bible, and it is an, it's an awesome word. It's a word that, even though it's a weird word, like forget Acropolis, that's a weird word you'll probably never hear again. But propitiation, that's a word worth learning because its meaning is absolutely precious. Let's go to Hebrews 9, 1 through 7. If somebody could look that up for me and read that. Hebrews 9, 1 through 7. Who's going to read that for me? Josiah, go ahead. All right, so what's going on here? This is the book of Hebrews, which um, it it parallels and explains and expounds on um, Christ's fulfillment of the sacrificial system in the Old Testament. If you read the book of Leviticus, read Hebrews with it because it will will parallel that. And most of this is from, um, in detail, the book of Leviticus. And what it's talking about is this. Under the Old Covenant and the sacrificial system, the high priest on uh, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, which I believe is next week. I think, that, I think that's next week um, is that date on the calendar, in the Jewish calendar. Um, the high priest for that year, after much ceremonial washings and cleansing, um, there would be a bull that was sacrificed and a goat that was sacrificed. The bull was for the sins of the high priest. The goat was for the sins of the people. And he would take that basin of blood from that sacrifice that had been killed, and he would go through the outer court, or he would go through the the holy place, and then there was a huge veil 
and he would go through that veil into the Holy of Holies. Now, this was no formality. This was life or death serious. Um, if the high priest did anything that was not um, part of the regulation, if he did anything wrong, basically, he could be struck dead. And there, there are stories in the Old Testament. Um, it, he read of the Ark of the Covenant being in the, the Holy of Holies. And the Ark of the Covenant basically uh, represented God's presence with man. And there were times where uh, inadvertently or whatever, people had touched the Ark of the Covenant and been struck dead. There's stories of that in the Old Testament. So this is, this is not a formality. This is life or death serious. He would go into the Holy of Holies, um, throwing um, incense in front of him as like a, a smoke covering to hide himself from the, the presence of the Lord. And he would take that blood and he would pour it on the mercy seat. Now, I told you that that word propitiation was used in this passage, but yet we didn't read it. If we'd have read it, Josiah probably would have got a little hung up on it. Propitiation, because it's a hard word to say. But the word is used, it's translated differently. In this passage, mercy seat or um, propitiation is translated as mercy seat. And what this is doing is acting out, giving us an example of what a propitiation is. And it's this the satisfaction of God's wrath on a substitute. See, it wasn't the blood. Who had sinned? The people. The, the high priest, even, was a sinner. And the people, God's people, had sinned. Was it their blood that was on the mercy seat? No. It was the blood of the bull and the goat. Now, these were never, all through the Old Testament, he said, I do not delight in the blood of bulls and goats. Um, in Hebrews, it says the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin. Later on, it tells us that Christ entered once for all with his own blood to be a propitiation for our sins. In our stead, in our place, we deserved God's wrath, but he took it on himself. So going back to Romans, we could read that verse like this, where it says where God put Christ forward as a propitiation, we could read it like this, whom God put forward as a wrath-absorbing, wrath-satisfying substitute by his blood. This is how God can remain just and yet show forgiveness and mercy and grace to sinners. Matter of fact, um, the word propitiation has a, a little spin on it that means wrath turned away and favor gained. So the wrath is turned away from us, and instead of wrath being upon us, which is what the Bible says, we were children of wrath before we were saved. 
that now it is turned to favor. And that's the definition of grace, isn't it? God's unmerited favor wasn't our merits. It was Christ. But yet we stand in favor with him because of that. I want, I want you to see this so clearly um, because this gets so confused. Let's look at Luke. If somebody could read Luke 22, 39 through 44. Who's getting that for me? Logan? Read it. It's a good... You got it? So Jesus is in torment here. He is in absolute dread of what's about to happen. But what does he ask? Logan, can you tell us, what does he ask to pass from him? The cup. Do you remember we, we talked about the cup? And I said we would come back to that. What was in the cup? The wine of God's wrath poured full strength into the cup of his anger. Jesus Christ, although enduring incredible physical agony on the cross, no doubt not to belittle that in any way, it was possibly the most horrendous way that a man can die is a Roman crucifixion. That is not what Jesus was in such torment over. He's in torment over bearing God's wrath. That's what's in the cup. The wine of God's wrath. And you say, I wonder what, what that's like. Praise God for the believer. We'll never know. We'll know the glories of his grace and his love and his joy and his, his mercy. But we'll never experience that. As it says in Romans, that's to be received by faith. We're saved by grace through faith. Christ bears our sins. There's another option, though. Let me ask you this. Was the atonement of Christ necessary? Yes, and then again, no. See, we've asked the question, how can God remain just and forgive sinners? 
And so in that case, the atonement of Christ was absolutely necessary. Was there another way that God could vindicate his justice, uphold his great name and his glory and his holiness and his righteousness? Was there another way for him to do that? The other way was if he sent every single person to bear the just wrath and penalty for their sins in hell. So the atonement is only necessary. See, we, we feel so entitled, I think, sometimes the, that, that well, well, Jesus, you know, he, he just did that. He didn't have to. He did not have to. The atonement only comes, becomes necessary for God to rescue sinful men. Praise God that He is loving. He's not only just, but He is loving and He's merciful and He's full. All of those things that we read at the start, full of steadfast love, showing mercy to thousands. We see that. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever should believe in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. The love of God is beyond belief. And one of my favorites is Romans 5.8. We don't have to look it up. Um, Romans 5.8 says this, God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, sinners, enemies of God, spitting in His face, um, not concerned at all with His name, with His glory, with His honor, concerned about us being the center of our universe. And He came to that universe, and He died to demonstrate His love, to save sinful men. Let me tell you this story, and we'll, um, we'll wrap up. had a friend. Um, a few years ago, we were at a camp, a Christian uh, camp together. And um, I hadn't seen him in a few years. And so we kind of stole away one night and, um, and spent several hours catching up. And we, we talked till late in the morning or late at night, early in the morning. And he told me um, this terrible story of, of his last couple years of life that um, he was married, um, had several kids. Um, outside looking in, it was, you know, perfect family, nothing going wrong at all. And then he finds out that she is in love with another man and that she's in the middle of an adulterous affair. And he is crushed. And he's relaying the story to me. And he thought after it was found out that surely she would come back to him. Surely she would realize that he loves him and not this other man. She looks straight in the face and says, I'm in love with this other guy. I don't love you. So he's going to the scripture for strength and for guidance. 
And it wasn't passages on marriage necessarily that stayed him in those times. It was this verse right here. God demonstrates his love for us and that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Now, Ephesians 5 does say, Husbands, love your wives like Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. And so you put those two together. You're like, I'm supposed to love her like he loves me. And he said that really clicked for the first time as he was seeing her in love with another man. I can't imagine the, the hurt and the pain and the betrayal that he was experiencing in that. And he said, it gave me just a tiny glimpse at how much God, the infinite God of the universe, loved us that while we were his enemies, while we were sinners, that Christ would condescend, take on flesh, and bear the wrath that we deserved. That is beyond belief. So his motivations or his causes for the atonement to vindicate his justice, but he only has to vindicate his justice if he's going to show love and mercy to man. Ultimately, it's for his glory. Um, real quick, as we close, John 12, 27 through 28. Jesus, it's earlier in John, but Jesus is looking forward or looking down, not forward, to the, uh, to the crucifixion. He knows it's coming. And he says, for this reason, um, I've come to this hour. And he says, this is what he says. He says, Father, glorify your name. And the Father answers him and says, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. And I believe what he means there is I have been glorified and pleased with your life, and I will be glorified and pleased with your death. Here's Jesus, and this is the whole point of salvation and the whole universe anyway, is God's glory. But here's Jesus looking at the cross, and he is consumed at that moment even with his Father's glory. Let me ask you this. Josh um, last week was talking a little bit about, you know, kind of the, you know, is God just standing by while COVID is going on? Is he active in that? Is he sovereign over that? Is he, you know, what, how is that working together? Let me ask you this. What is the most horrific event that has ever happened in the history of the world? Hint, we've been talking about it all night. The slaying of the king of glory, God's precious one and only begotten son on a Roman cross by wicked men. That is the most horrific event that has ever happened or ever will happen. And God used that. He caused it and he used it for the most good and for God's ultimate glory. Man's good and God's glory. 
So here's what I want you to see. Can God do that again? Or is that just a one-time event? He can do that again. Romans 8, 28 says he does that all the time. It says, for God causes all things to work together for good for those who love God, for those who are the called according to his purpose. So think about this. And it tells us what our ultimate good is a few verses later, that we be conformed to the image of Christ. And what does John 12 tell us that Jesus was consumed with even when he set his face to the cross, he was consumed with the Father's glory. So for us to be like Christ, our ultimate good is for us to be like Christ that we're consumed with God's glory. I pray each of you is consumed with that, with God's glory, that you can see Jesus as the King of glory that condescended and took on flesh and bore the wrath of God in our stead. The atonement's many things. We'll talk about a lot of other things that it is next week. But tonight, I wanted you to understand there is nothing more central in the gospel or maybe even more important than propitiation, God bearing the wrath of God in our stead. Uh, let's pray. Father, we come to you and we thank you so much. Um, for what you've done. Words, just, they don't cut. Lord, you are, what you did for us in demonstrating your love for us and that while we were sinners, your son dying for us, Lord, is, is beyond words. Lord, I pray for every person who is in this room tonight. Lord, I pray if they cannot see Jesus as glorious as the king of glorious and see themselves as desperately in need of him because of their sinfulness. Lord, I pray that you would cause them to be born again. For you said, if unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He cannot see the glorious king. Lord, we just thank you so much for everything you've done for us. And we pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.